Good morning. This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. Not only the title of this series, but a prayer of the heart that all the recipients of this teaching would indeed have the eyes of their heart enlightened to see Jesus in his universally saving significance. This is the 48th increment of our study, and we'll be logging in at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. Before we get started today, I wanted to announce the passing from this life of one of the stars of the Telestai Phalanx, that being Tim Knott. And Tim has passed into the presence of the Lord, where I'm pretty sure he's going to receive the morning star and be part of that morning star order of overcoming believers. Tim faced a rare brain cancer and fought it till the end, bravely, with faith, with courage, and confidence in his destiny in Jesus Christ. Tim's been with us ever since at least Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall days. That goes way back. He was a quiet, spiritual professional and one of the salt of the earth that I call the light of the world because he was unassuming, modest, quiet, sometimes almost unnoticed in our assembly, but steady and faithful, a true friend, and very generous. And when we had food drives, for one thing, he would bring in cases of food, which demonstrated his care and his love. We'll miss you, Tim, but we'll see you soon. And to tell us thy phalanx salutes you from the heart. I want to extend also my condolences to Kim Germain, his true yoke fellow, his true sharer of his heart and life and caregiver. And Kim, our hearts, you're in our hearts, and we know that you know where Tim is right now. Thank you for being a true friend to him. And now, Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gaze and not just glance into your word and to see with worshipful eyes our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we recognize today what it just exactly what it means that you, for whom and through whom are all things, considered it fitting that Jesus, the founder of our salvation, would be perfected through suffering. And what that means for us, what that means for the church, what that means for the world, what that means for all whom we love. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Like the Septuagint version of Psalm 44, which was quoted in Hebrews 1, 8 through 9, and Psalm 8, which was alluded to and quoted in Psalm 2, 5 through 9, Psalm 22 is going to figure prominently in our upcoming exegesis and exposition. That's the Septuagint of Psalm 21. Quoted in Hebrews 2.12, right down the road, begins with Aistatelos, just like Psalm 8 did, just like Psalm 44 did, which is 45 in your English translations. And that means regarding completion, especially as translated by the New English translation of the Septuagint. Psalm 22.22, which is LXX 21.23, is about to be quoted in order to graphically illustrate the oneness of Jesus with his people by the fact that he is not ashamed to call them 
or us, his brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2.11. Let me just read a slightly expanded translation that I've come up with for 2.11 to 12 to get started. For both he who sanctifies. Now in the Greek, that's ha hagiadzon, the sanctifier. For both he who sanctifies, or the sanctifier, and those who are sanctified are all of one. That means one perfect union, one perfect solidarity. For this reason, he, that being Jesus the Son, is not ashamed to call them, that is, the sanctified, his brothers and sisters, saying, in verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. That's Jesus speaking to the Father about us. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation, that's ecclesia, introducing the ecclesiological element of Hebrews. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing hymns to you. Psalm 22, 22, LXX 21, 23. This reminds us of Jesus leading a hymn to, of praise to the Father in Romans chapter 15, verses 9 through 12. It reminds us of the Lord Yahweh singing over his people with joy and with love. In Zephaniah 3, 17 to 19. Now, if you're concerned that your family members are among those who reject you or who will reject you for your faith in Jesus Christ and for your confession of him, your acknowledgement of him, then you should be made aware that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. There is a redefinition of family here, not only in Hebrews, but throughout the scripture, the New Testament, especially if you look not only at Hebrews 3, 6 and 3, 14, as well as this passage to 11 to 13, and also Matthew 12, 48 to 50, Mark 3.35, and Luke 8.21. There is a redefinition of family, or we could say a reorientation to what family really means. In our time, when the nuclear family, as it's called, is being relentlessly attacked, by a Marxist-style revolution that is bent on destroying every established institution, including the provision for law and order. This is going on now as a prelude, as a kind of dress rehearsal for a conquest by a foreign power. At this time, then, we should be paying attention to Jesus' redefinition or reorientation of what family really means. A family in which all are part of a new creation in him. We, the sanctified, are complete in the sanctifier. And the sanctifier is complete in us, the sanctified. The sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one. And that means, in one sense at least, one family. This is what it means when it says that the Son has been perfected, the founder of salvation has been perfected, And through suffering, through suffering, the founder of our salvation 
has been completed or perfected in a perfect solidarity or union with humankind. Those human beings with whom he is united have become partakers of the sinless divine nature, even as he has become a partaker of the human nature and even a partaker of sin by becoming sin, not by doing sin, not by knowing sin of the mind, or by having sin, but by becoming sin for the removal of sin once and for all and forever. He who suffered for us suffers with us as we experience suffering on our way to perfection or completion, on our way to full conformity into the image of God's Son in Romans 8.29. Jesus, the founder of salvation, who suffered to become perfect or to become complete, is the sanctifier here in Hebrews 2.11. In Hebrews 13:12 all the way at the other side of Hebrews his sanctification of the people was by his own blood There's a continuity today that will flow in this message that I think is only going to be picked up by the very keen and astute by those who are in fact spirit guided and taught Jesus, the founder of salvation, who suffered to become perfect, is the sanctifier. In Hebrews 13, 12, his sanctification of the people was by his own blood. Therefore, he, the founder, Archegon, the founder of salvation, suffered so that he would sanctify the people. Suffering, because it says, by his own blood. Moreover, it says that he suffered outside the gate of the city, that being the old Jerusalem, which had canceled and expelled him. The old Jerusalem, the apostate Jerusalem, had canceled And expelled him. By his exaltation, however, through death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he entered into the New Jerusalem, where he is right now. Hebrews 12.22 and 12.24. That's the city which is above us, which is free. And is the mother of us all. Speaking of family. Galatians 4.26. Jesus suffered that he may sanctify. Jesus suffered to be perfected. By becoming one with the sanctified. Those whom he would sanctify. The one who sanctifies. That being Jesus. And the ones whom he sanctified, that being us, and by us, I mean a pretty large number of people. Those who he sanctified are now one entity with the sanctifier, one family, one solidarity, one unified whole. As 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, and I think it's helpful to us at this juncture, for as the body is one, that's the human body, is one, and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. As the sufferer sanctifies, so must the sanctified suffer as they go on to completion. 
even though only the sanctifier has suffered in such a way as to remove sin. The sanctified, those whom he sanctified, also suffer. They suffer in this world, but it's in a way that is what we might call formative, educative, in a way through which Christ is formed in them or us. As Galatians 4.19 says, Paul uses the motherly analogy in 4.19 of Galatians as he does for the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, who is the mother of us all in Galatians 4.26. So our suffering is formative. It occurs as Christ is formed in us or as we are being conformed into the image of God's son. It begins now in this world. It's culminated in future world with the bodily resurrection, of course. This conformity is an act of vertical causation, which culminates in the bodily transfiguration of the sanctified. When I say vertical causation, I mean something caused and brought about and achieved from beginning to end by God. Hebrews 2.11a strictly reads, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. The sanctifier and the sanctified are all one entity. One perfect solidarity. Thanks to the fact that the sanctifier was the sufferer outside the gate of the city that represents the dominant culture of this age. As the sanctifier of his people, Jesus is revealed to be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sanctifies Israel. Let me say that again. As the sanctifier, Hagiadzon, the sanctifier, Jesus is revealed to be Yahweh, who sanctifies Israel. For as Yahweh said, quote, when my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, Yahweh, sanctify Israel. That's Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-eight. So together, the sanctifier and the sanctified could rightly be called the Israel of God. All from one is also an acceptable rendering of the phrase ex enos pantes from our last increment. From one father, you may have it in your translation, your English translation, many of them do. From one father, as some translations have it, is not wrong. It doesn't say that. It may indicate it. And it's not wrong, though it's not necessarily the precisely intended sense. Nevertheless, it is in keeping with the family motif, which carries through chapter 3 of Hebrews. The sanctifier and the sanctified are surely all of one father. Or we could even say all from one father, ex enos. Even though, and this has to be always the qualification, even though only Jesus proceeds eternally from the Father and of his own substance as consubstantial with him. In any case, Jesus says, my God and your God, 
my father and your father to his disciples. John 20, 17. And in prayer, he asks or prays our father. Matthew 6, 9. The upshot, however, is that Jesus, the sanctifier, has achieved perfect solidarity with those whom he has sanctified, and the sanctified is everyone for whom the sanctifier and the founder of salvation tasted death for, which is the incomprehensible remuneration that sin pays its subjects. Jesus tasted it for all. Now, the perfection of the founder of salvation, Hebrews 2.10, and the sanctifier, 2.11, through suffering is linked with the perfection of the sanctified through suffering. And that sanctified means us. The phrase, even now, but then completely, which is a kind of eschatological motif. Even now, but then completely, refers to the sanctified. The sanctified are, even now, perfected. We have to look to Hebrews 10.14 for that one, but it's important too. The sanctified are even now perfected. Because as Hebrews 10.14 says, by one offering he has perfected. And that's tetelioken, tetelioken, which is related to the word tetelestai semantically. Through one offering, by one offering, that is, he has perfected forever. And there's a little phrase, eisto dianakis, eisto dianakis, E-I-S, then T-O, then D-I-E-N-E-K-E-S, eisto which is translated properly forever. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There's the sanctified again. So cutting through the controversy that arises from the various meanings of words that mean for an age or forever, depending on context, the PT here uses eistodianakis, which denotes perpetuity and conjures that which we would say is forever. The syntactical form of the verbs teleao and hagiazo, teleao for to perfect or complete, and hagiazo to sanctify, the form of those verbs is revelatory, it's very telling. Teleao is in the perfect active indicative form, and it indicates the completion of the action of vertical causation by God in the perfecting of the sanctified along with the sanctifier. The perfection is complete with ongoing results, says the perfect tense. That perfection is complete with ongoing results in the present, which go on continually until there is a bodily perfection in resurrection. The sanctification here is spoken of is an ongoing process as shown by the present participial form of the verb hagiazo, H-A-G-I-A-Z-O, showing that even though the sanctified are already perfected, even now. They are also being sanctified in this world. That process involves suffering on the part of the sanctified, that's us, even as the founder of salvation, the sanctifier, Jesus, was perfected through suffering. Esto Dionekis then, in Hebrews 10, 14, is a brilliant phrase to be used here to indicate continuity to perpetuity, perpetuity, 
continuity to perpetuity. With this phrase, we have the dual sense of continually and always. Forever, in other words. Unlimited duration is the idea in this phrase, ace or ice ta dianekis. Something that hellists like to think has to do with God's punishment of evildoers. And God's punishment of evildoers is never forever. Only hellists like to think that. The only things that have unlimited duration, according to the scriptures, are things that God does redemptively, restoratively, and does so in his great love and abundant mercy. As the scripture says, his wrath may endure for a moment, but his mercy endures forever. Psalm 30, verse 5. So let's get back to Hebrews 2.11. I know I've said some technical things here, but that's the way that God instructs me to teach, to be technical, to be exegetical, to be expositional, but also to do some exhortation. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. Because of which, Jesus, that's the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, the sanctified, brothers and sisters, his siblings. Now, sanctification, if we want to do the theological functional specialty of doctrines here for a moment, sanctification is the catchword in Hebrews as justification is a thematic word in Romans. Both sanctification and justification are acts of vertical causation. That is, actions performed by the God of all grace. Justification is the catchword in Romans. Because in that epistle, Paul is using Psalm 143, Septuagint 142.2 to show that no one will ever be justified in God's sight by any horizontal human action, whatever. This verse was a pivot in Paul's argument against an opponent who propagated a false gospel of justification by human performance of works. Works specifically that are in compliance with the letter of Moses' law, beginning with circumcision of males. Paul's opponent and the faction that the opponent represented believed and taught that the doers of the law will be justified. Romans 2.13. So Paul alludes to Psalm 143.2, LXX 142.2, and uses it as what I call an astonishingly effective pivot in his argument. Begins in Romans 3.20. And it's a pivot of Paul's argument for the gospel of God about his son and God's justification of all who sinned in Romans 3.23 justification of all who sinned by God's grace on the basis of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The all who sinned are justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24. Put 3.23 together with 3.24, which Romans road tracts Hardly ever do. Psalm 143.2 then, which is again the Septuagint 142.2, is the pivot on which Paul's argument turns by showing that, quote, no one 
is justified in God's sight by any human means, and that includes the works of the law. So as justification is shown to be an entirely gracious divine action in Romans and throughout Romans, as well as in Galatians, so sanctification is shown to be a completely gracious action of God in Hebrews. In both cases, Romans and Hebrews, Romans with its justification, Hebrews with its sanctification, the divine action comes through the redemption that was secured by God in Jesus Christ, Romans 3.24 to 26 compared with Hebrews 9.12. The redemption that was secured by God in Jesus Christ in the Christ event, which culminated in Jesus' experience of death for all, his resurrection from the dead, and his exaltation, enthronement, and coronation at the right hand of God in the unimaginable highest height of heaven. As the divine, vertically caused act of justification does not require any human act, including any works prescribed by the law on the part of the one who is dead in trespasses. Hey, you, dead man in trespasses, come down to the aisle and confess your sins. Hey, you, dead person, confess Jesus Christ with your mouth and you'll be saved. Hey, you, there's all kinds of things that we tell spiritually dead people to do and then promise them falsely that by them doing that, they're justified. That's a false gospel as much as and even more insidiously evil as the gospel of those who preached law works for justification. Surrender to Jesus, commitment to Jesus, confession of sins, repentance from sins. All these things are given and front load the gospel wrongly. By grace you were saved. And through Christ's faithfulness. And that's a gift of God. And not of works of any kind. So, as the divine vertically caused act of justification does not require any human action, including any works prescribed by the law on the part of the one who is dead in trespasses and sins, if he did works, they'd be dead works. If a dead spiritually dead person did works, they'd be dead works. Hebrews 6.1, Hebrews 9.14. We're purified from dead works by the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I would think you'd be happy about that. Some people are, some aren't. And so, the divinely vertical act of sanctification requires no offerings performed by those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1, Ephesians 2.5, whose works in this regard are dead. So, as in Romans, the vertically caused act of justification does not require any human act, including obedience to the letter of the law. So, in Hebrews, sanctification, a vertically performed act of God, does not require... Dead works on the part of those who approach God. They are dead works, and so they are inefficacious. The state brought about, now there is a state or condition brought about, whether by justification or sanctification, that state is called soteria or salvation. For this reason, Jesus, the founder of salvation, as he's called in Hebrews 2.10, the author of eternal salvation, as he's called in Hebrews 5.9, is also called the sanctifier. Now, because the Father and the Son are one in the action of sanctification, it can also be said that Jesus is the sanctifier as it can be said 
that the Father is the sanctifier. As Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, sanctify them in the truth. And then he added, your word is truth. He's asking the Father to sanctify them. John 17, 17. To justify is to make right. To sanctify is to make holy. Only God makes right. Only God makes holy. It is the doing of the God of all grace. If you compare 1 Corinthians 1.30 with with 1 Peter 5.10, it is the doing of the God of all grace that Christ has been made to be both justification or righteousness and sanctification or holiness for us in 1 Corinthians 1.30. What that does is cancels all boasting on the part of all flesh, 1 Corinthians 1.31. And that, of course, is connected to Jeremiah 9.23 and 24. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, who's we there? Who's we that are made the righteousness of God in him? Well, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we is the world. We are the world. We are the world. I hate that song. Never mind. The one who was made sin for us was also made to be righteousness for us. Put 2 Corinthians 5.21 together with 1 Corinthians 1.30 and enjoy the explosion of correlation, the insight. Consequently, if Jesus is our righteousness, and he is, in fact, he fulfills the Jeremiah 23.6, he is called the Lord our righteousness. If he is our righteousness, he is our righteousness, and he is, then we are the righteousness of God in him. If God made Jesus to be our sanctification, and he did, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, then we are sanctified in him. We have seen now in our studies, and perhaps if you're just listening to Hebrews, that's your first series with us, We've also had series called Better Call Paul and Romans the Epistle, which I called Reading Romans with the Light On. And after that, a 10-part series called Romans Doctrines, Justification. We learned in those three series, and we saw that the faith, that is the instrumentality of justification, is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not the personal faith, of the one who's justified. The same is true for sanctification. We are sanctified through the faithfulness or the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ. His obedience to the extent of the death of the cross. Because that is true, Jesus is called the sanctifier. Ho hagiadzon. And we are called the sanctified. Hoi hagiadzomenoi. Hoi Hagia Zomenoi, the sanctified. Beyond this, however, it is said that the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one. We could say all of one entity. Body and head, we could even say. That's what I'm talking about when I say perfect solidarity. The son's perfection that we're talking about, why did the son have to be perfected? The son's perfection is the perfect solidarity as the sanctifier with the sanctified. And he had to be perfected through suffering. The little preposition ek or ex, ex as it's spelled before vowels as it is here, can be according to Lunita, a marker of the substance of which something consists or out of which it is made. I would argue that that's how X is used here. All of one, all of X, one, enos. The sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one 
inasmuch as both the sanctifier and the sanctified are participants in both the divine and the human nature. The difference being, and this is an extremely significant difference, the difference being that Jesus, the sanctifier, has a divine nature by eternal generation. He's consubstantial with the Father and the Spirit. And we, on the other hand, the sanctified, are partakers of the divine nature, as Second Peter 1.4 says, in the sense of being in Christ or in solidarity with Christ. Not as divine beings, the sanctified are not divine beings, but those who are in union or in solidarity with Jesus, the God-man. This is where we enjoy the answer to that twofold question, a question for intelligence, which we will ask a follow-up question on, a question for reflection. The answer to the question for, for intelligence, what's the question for intelligence? Why did the son need to be perfected and why through suffering? The answer to that question for intelligence is that the son needed to be perfected in the sense of coming into perfect solidarity with all of humanity. For this to be achieved, the founder of salvation had to put away the sin that blocked that perfect solidarity. He did so by suffering as the paschal lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine compared with Hebrews 9.26. All of this, incidentally, flows into the doctrine of the priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek, as the PT shows in the course of his homily. It's introduced or suggested, the first note of the symphony on the priesthood is played in Hebrews 2.17 and 18, but then it picks up and enters into a symphonic crescendo beginning with Hebrews 5, 6 and going all the way up through probably Hebrews 10 and even further. So, even though of one father, that is, we are all of one father, the sanctifier and the sanctified, are of one father, even though that's not written in Hebrews 2.11. Translations which have that phrase, of one father, have not entirely erred regarding the intended sense. I say this because the next fragment of Hebrews 2.11 says, for this reason, for this reason, he, that's the son or the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, that is, the sanctified, his brothers and sisters. If there is ever a family that supersedes in value the so-called nuclear family, it's this family. With the father of the Lord Jesus Christ also being the father of all those whom Jesus sanctified through his suffering. We are brothers and sisters merely by being born of the Father by the Father's gracious will, in James 1.18. We are Jesus' brothers and sisters in deed, not in deed as one word, but in deed, when we hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, when we hear the word of God and keep it, we express in deed that we are his family. Luke 8.21, when we do the will of the Father, Matthew 12.50, we are indeed the brothers and sisters of Jesus. And we only do the will of the Father as God is in us willing and doing, as we know from Philippians 2.13. And we are his mother. 
when Christ is fully formed in us and being formed in us in Galatians 4.19. And when we come to mature solidarity with him through educative and formative training. That's why we're in this world. That's why we have to stick it out. And that's why we must be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And not to be fragile in the way that the world wants us to be fragile and malleable to its conformity into its own image. We come to a mature solidarity with him in our experience through educative and formative training, through suffering and through persistently trusting him. The best way to do that is to continually hear the word of God and mix faith with it. As Jesus is not ashamed, it says, to call us his brothers and sisters, God is not ashamed to call himself the God of those who desire a better fatherland, patria, country, we could say. Hebrews 11.14 and Hebrews 11.16 refers to this. Those of us who desire a heavenly country, a better fatherland, who look away from this world to the next, are pleasing to God because he's not ashamed to call us his God because he's got that city for us. He's got that fatherland prepared for us. Apostasy, by its very definition, is not so much a backsliding into immorality, that's not a good thing in itself, but apostasy as defined by Hebrews is departing from the eschatological hope of future world, departing from the living God who is in future world beckoning us on. It's a leaving off and rejection of an eschatological hope. It's departing with an evil heart of unbelief from the living God in Hebrews 3.12. God has in fact prepared a city-state. The word is polis in the Greek for those who hope for such a city or uh, for such a country. Having a polis, P-O-L-I-S, is of supreme importance to the Greco-Roman culture of the time in which this document called Hebrews was produced. Indeed, there was the belief on the part of many that a person was not a real person without a polis. The polis was also an important idea with the Jewish culture and within Hellenistic Judaism, where there was a focus on a heavenly city-state, and it, which is called a heavenly polis in Hebrews 11.10. To encourage the saints at Philippi, for example, Paul wrote, quote, our citizenship. And he uses the word polituma, which is semantically related to polis. Our citizenship is in heaven, in Philippians 3.20. This would have been especially meaningful to the Philippians, to whom he wrote, since their ancestors had settled in Philippi, as a colony of Rome after the defeat of Mark Anthony by Octavian. Now there's much to say about shame or not being ashamed in the book of Hebrews, the epistle. The culture of the time was one in which shame and honor were particularly influential over people. The same is true in our own times, especially since the advent of social media which has come to be, in some respects, a vehicle to heap honor on some and shame on others. But it's often done in a way that censures the righteous and aggrandizes the wicked. You've got kind of a Psalm 12 thing going on today. 
no matter what the present culture thinks of you. You can rejoice in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you my brother or my sister. Once that's been established, what power or relevance do the opinions of adversaries have over you, over us? The Lord is our helper. What can man do to us? Hebrews 13, 6. Now, family is everything. You hear that everywhere. Ad nauseum today. Family is everything. It's a saying that is commonly spoken today. And that's true. If you're talking about the family of God, it is idolatry if you're talking about the human family apart from God and saying family is everything. Our culture is riddled with idolatry. Riddled with it. It's, a, it's like a metastasized cultural cancer. But the idols are often hidden. They're hidden. People may consider it an honor to be devoted to these hidden idols. But in fact, their devotion is to their shame. As Philippians 3.18 and 19 describes. Now the perfection of the son is his perfect solidarity with all of humanity. It was fitting that the son suffer to enter this perfect solidarity. For only by suffering could the son reveal the unrestricted self sacrificing, suffering love of God. More by suffering, the son removed the terrible obstacle to that solidarity. By suffering love, love that suffered, the son removed the terrible obstacle to the solidarity between him and all of humanity. That being the systemic sinfulness of the human race. Now the sanctifier and the sanctified, the sir, single inclusive representative, and the whole of humanity, and all of creation for that matter, are all of one. That's the eschatological goal. The prayer of Jesus to the Father in which he prayed, may they all be one, Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, may they be one in us. That prayer in John 17, 21 is answered. The whole of humanity is now one as the three persons of the triune being called God are one. In the same prayer where Jesus speaks of the Father sanctifying people by his word, in John 17, 17, and the son sanctifying himself for the sake of all people in John 17, 19, Jesus petitions that they may all be one. The human race can only be one as the triune God is one if the human race is brought into solidarity with the triune God into a fellowship, we could say, of divine and human persons. This is what was finished, the telestai. This was what was accomplished. This was what was achieved when Jesus spoke from the cross the Aramaic equivalent of the Greek word to telestai, a word that is intimately, semantically related to all words regarding completion. So consider Hebrews 2.11 in its full laconic power for both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one. Both the sanctifier and the sanctified are all of one. Ex enos pantes. That's perfect solidarity. Now, following the reasoning of the PT as he's guided by the Holy Spirit, because the sanctifier and the sanctified, 
Yahweh and Israel are all of one, then Jesus, the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call the sanctified his brothers and sisters. And why not? They are the many sons and daughters that God is calling to glory, to the destiny of glory and honor that is exemplified in Jesus, whom we see crowned with glory and honor. The PT doesn't go too far without resorting to the scriptures, particularly the Psalms that we're going to see in a moment or down the road. We're almost done today. And also he resorts to the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from Psalm 22, 22, which is LXX 21, 23, and Isaiah 8, 18, to show that these are two examples of Jesus calling those whom he sanctified his brothers and sisters. One of those times he refers to his brothers and sisters directly, and the other time he refers to them as, quote, the children that God gave to me, with whom he presents himself to God. So let's look in kind of a forecast at Hebrews 2, 11b through 13 to get an idea of where we're going. Because of which Jesus that's the sanctifier, is not ashamed to call them, the sanctified, brothers and sisters, or his siblings, saying, I will announce your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will sing hymns to you. That's speaking of God. And again, I will put my trust in him. We have much to say about that one down the road. And again, here I am with the children God has given me. Now, the Christological interpretation of these scriptures is both vivid and stunning. Once again, we're reminded of how Jesus expounded the prophets and the Psalms and the writings to show how they testify of him, how the world and the church needs to have their minds open, how the world and the church needs to have our minds open to understand the scriptures as the testimony of Jesus. This is the way we see Jesus in this present age, this present evil age. Without this vision, we'll perish in this evil age. And how we need to have our minds open to understand also that the Holy Spirit is still speaking in the present tense through the scriptures, and that he is even now portraying to us Jesus before the eyes of our hearts. Now, when we see Jesus, we hear him say, here I am with the children God has given me. He will never be detached from his brothers and sisters. He is the child that was born for us in Isaiah 9.5 LXX, and he is the son given to us. The child that was born for us, and we are the children whom God gave to him. We are all of one. To see Jesus is to see everything clearly, everything clearly. To see Jesus is to see the sanctifier and the sanctified all as one. If we truly see Jesus, we can never see our group or only our group and others as other in an antagonistic sense. Instead, we see all the sanctified as his sisters and brothers and mother. There is a divine solidarity. It's the perfect solidarity of the eternal Father and the eternal Son and the eternal Spirit. There is a Christian solidarity, the perfect union of all believers in Jesus as the Son of God. And this solidarity is perfect. It's perfect. Because of the perfect solidarity of the redeemed with the Redeemer the sanctified with the sanctifier, the body with the head. 
And this Christian solidarity, which we call the church, is merely the prolepsis or a kind of first fruits, as James 1.18 puts it, of a universal solidarity when God will be all in all. In the body of Christ, Christ is all and he's in all, Colossians 3.11. But that's just a forecast and a preview and a prolepsis of all things, visible and invisible, being summed up in Christ. All things in heaven and on earth being comprised of Christ. Colossians 1.20, Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 4.10. And when all things are comprised of Christ, then God, who is pleased to dwell in his Son, in Colossians 1.19, will be pleased to dwell in the all things that the Son fills up with himself. That will be the fulfillment of the words, God will be all in all. As usual, the scriptures which the PT chooses to quote are strategically effective. It will be to our advantage to examine them in some detail as we've examined others that he's also referenced. That's where we're headed. That's the end. Amen.